This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Osteoporosis. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. In 1830s, French pathologist Jean Loebstein discovered that bones contained holes. However, certain people's bones seemed to have larger holes than others. He called these large holed bones porous, which led to the term osteoporosis to describe fragile porous bones. Osteoporosis is a rather modern diagnosis. It wasn't discovered until the early 18th century by Scottish orthopedic surgeon John Hunter. Since its discovery, scientists have examined ancient bones from as early as 6,000 years ago. And what they found is that even several millennia in the past, men had higher bone density compared to today's men. This, they postulated, was due to their active lifestyle. Women, however, seem to suffer from lower bone density despite their higher activity levels, especially older women, some of whom even had osteoporosis. Egyptian mummies from 4,000 years ago can be seen to have a dowager's hump, a sign of osteoporosis. May is Osteoporosis Awareness Month, a condition that affects a nearly estimated 10 million Americans 50 years and older. To help us better understand this condition, I have invited two of Ohio State University's metabolic bone experts. I am pleased to introduce Associate Professor of Internal Medicine, Dr. Stephen Ng. Steve is an endocrinologist who specializes in bone diseases and will take us through the evaluation of osteoporosis. And Dr. Lara Ryan is an Associate Professor of Internal Medicine and is also an endocrinologist who specializes in women's health, including osteoporosis. Today, she will discuss the treatment of osteoporosis. Steve, Laro, welcome back to MedNet. Great Thank to you. be here. Uh, now, Steve, 
you know, uh, I mentioned the dowager's hump earlier, but are there other signs or symptoms that we can detect on history and physical for a patient with who might have osteoporosis? Sure. In the exam room, uh, I'll commonly uh, uh, assess the distance in number of finger breaths uh, mm -hmm. between the occiput and the uh, the back of the wall, um, as well as uh, that uh, distance in finger breaths between the lowest rib and the top of the pelvis. These these are signs that uh, there might be uh, compression fracture of the spine, say. Okay, that's very helpful. And Lara, what are some important facts that you want to make sure to gather when you're obtaining a history from a patient you think might have osteoporosis? The history is so important in understanding somebody's risk for fracture. Um, by far and away, the most important historical uh, aspect is whether or not the person themselves has ever had a low trauma fracture before, which um, is often defined as a fracture after a fall from standing height. Family history plays a, a big role in the likelihood of our patients having a fracture. And then um, other lifestyle aspects, uh, how much dairy they get in their diet, whether or not they smoke, how many alcoholic drinks they drink. And then another aspect that's really important is what is their occupation? They, are they doing a lot of heavy lifting? Is there um, someone in their life that requires physical assistance? Uh, what is their balance like? Do they have frequent falls? So history is really important in understanding, like putting that together with other data to understand fracture risk. Thanks, Lara. Before we get started with today's talk, please don't forget to check out our website at go.osu.edu slash mednet21. We have all 120 of our current webcasts available to stream there. The audio-only version of our programs is also available by podcast. So just search for MedNet21 CME on your podcast app. Finally, please send us any questions you have about the program using the Ask a Question feature on our webcast player. Now let's get started. Steve? Thanks. Um, my objectives in this first half are to first discuss some basics and uh, scope of the osteoporosis problem, and to uh, secondly, to review uh, the evaluation of uh, fracture risk and include some uh, clinical tips in that. So this uh, first slide um, uh, reviews a, def a definition of osteoporosis. Uh, this is a condition of all bones rather than a single bone. Um, on the top on the right you can see uh, a depiction of normal bone and on the bottom osteoporotic bone. And by eye, you can uh, appreciate that the osteoporotic bone has less mass, uh, that the bone tissue is deteriorated, the bone microarchitecture is disrupted. Uh, you, uh, you can easily see uh, fewer connections uh, in that osteoporotic bone versus the top normal bone. And this leads to uh, a decrease in the bone st strength, uh, which predisposes to the clinically uh, relevant event of uh, bone fracture. Here uh, is shown a uh, depiction of what bone mass uh, by different uh, sexes uh, will uh, look like a, a by age. Um, we all start off with a baby size uh, skeleton and that bone density will increase in, in sometime in, the, in young adulthood to peak bone mass. Um, importantly, uh, peak bone mass in men is greater than that in women. And also uh, an important difference is that men do not have uh, an abrupt time of loss of uh, sex steroids um, in the menopause in women. So 
there is a decrease of uh, bone density that's rapid around the time of menopause. Um, and then for both sexes, uh, age-related bone loss uh, later. Um, again, on uh, depiction of a, a normal uh, bone structure on the top left, um, and with uh, bone turnover, um, there will be a slide uh, talking about this in just a moment, uh, uh, the bone can be resorbed and over time there can be uh, areas that uh, uh, become disrupted and uh, lead to osteoporotic discontinu uh, discontinuous bone on the bottom right. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, here I'm showing uh, this process of bone remodeling. This is uh, fairly uh, stereotypical and occurring throughout life uh, in every bone. Uh, in which uh, osteoclast cells will come in and uh, degrade bone and essentially dig, it, dig up uh, a hole. Uh, this process will take a few weeks and those cells will depart and in their place uh, osteoblasts um, uh, come in and fill up that hole with uh, new, new bone. Um, and more or less, uh, th there's a, an, an equilibrium so that the amount of bone that is uh, 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 broken down is now um, built up. However, um, it's not exactly uh, equal so that with each resorption cavity that is created, there's a, just a small amount of n net negative loss, and that's important for um, both uh, menopausal as well as uh, age-related bone loss. Um, we can see the uh, depiction of the spine uh, showing um, uh, kyphosis as uh, this person um, ages from left to right. And on the right of the screen, uh, an example of a, a spinal compression fracture in, in the middle there. Uh, the problem in the United States is uh, shown here with numbers in millions. Um, this paper uh, came up almost a decade ago now and uh, took um, uh, the, the evidence from 2010 and projected ahead uh, to 2020 and 2030. So um, right now there are more than 12 million Americans with osteoporosis and more than 50 million with uh, osteopenia. And the projections uh, with uh, increasing time as the population overall ages is just going to increase. Um, every year there are an estimated 2 million fractures. Um, and in 2040, and, and the estimate's 3.2 million. Uh, and in that year, the cost of uh, osteoporosis burden will be uh, $95 billion annually. Um, I'm showing here uh, the fractures according to age. Uh, generally speaking, their fractures are going to be greater uh, as um, people uh, get older. But there are some subtle uh, distinctions here. You can see in the middle uh, for the wrist fracture uh, incidences, um, uh, in that 50 to the 64 age group, uh, it is greater. Um, then uh, later in life, uh, 65 to 74 is less, and et cetera. 
However, hip fractures, uh, spine fractures, pelvic fractures um, by these age strata increase over time. And at age 50, the lifetime remaining uh, estimates for future fracture will be one in two in women, one in five in men. Here is uh, clinical practice guidelines from Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation for indications of uh, uh, obtaining a, a DEXA scan. Um, this is universal for women at starting at age 65 and men starting at age 70. Uh, but for postmenopausal women who are younger um, or in the menopausal transition or men who are younger and have clinical risk factors, uh, this guideline advocates uh, getting a DEXA scan. Importantly, um, a fracture in adulthood at age 55 or, or older is an indication uh, for getting a bone density test. And uh, the last one is anybody, who, and any adult who's got a condition or a medication that's associated with uh, falling bone density. Uh, examples are shown here, such as rheumatoid arthritis or having an organ transplant, being on a steroid, or treated with aromatase inhibitor in, say, in breast cancer or androgen deprivation therapy in prostate cancer. Um, Various guidelines will have uh, risk factors for um, osteoporosis and for uh, fracture. Uh, some are smaller in size like this. Others are, uh, can take uh, in the, an entire page to list out. Um, but here are some really important ones, um, which include age, female sex, postmenopausal status, uh, early menopause, uh, low body weight or thinness, uh, Caucasian race, uh, importantly a prior fragility fracture, and in that, uh, whether that, that's a spine fracture that was noted clinically or by x-ray um, or other imaging means, uh, whether uh, mom or dad broke a hip, um, rheumatoid arthritis, smoking, alcohol, um, etc. So we're trying to uh, incorporate all of those into our fracture risk uh, prediction. It's a lot to remember. Um, fracs, uh, which I think by now, having been out for more than a decade, is, is a very useful uh, way to put all of these together. Um, it's, it, the clinical risk factors are shown here. And on the bottom, I'm putting this tip in uh, to actually list this in your clinical note. Uh, this came up with a conversation with primary care physicians at, at our institution because after receiving the uh, bone density tests, um, say getting an osteopenia score, um, the, the clinical challenge is to go back to the patients uh, and see uh, which buttons to press yes or no. Um, and so that was felt to be a, a clinical barrier. Um, if all of this is already in your note, uh, it may be a little bit easier to, to then refrax after the DEXA scan is obtained. So I'll start off here with a case of a 54-year-old white woman. She's um, not broken a bone and neither have her parents. She has rheumatoid arthritis and has been on uh, steroid therapy, prednisone 10 milligrams daily for at least a year. 
by hemoglobin A1C criteria has uh, diabetes, doesn't smoke, doesn't drink. Um, so <coughs> does she meet criteria to get a DEXA scan based on the prior uh, slides? Uh, yeah. Uh, this is because she's got uh, conditions, um, rheumatoid arthritis and type 2 diabetes that are associated with uh, bone loss or fracture and is on a medication uh, that is well known to uh, lead to bone loss and fracture. Now, FRAX is great, but it's not the end-all and be-all. There are many limitations, um, including the fact that not all known risk factors have been incorporated into the FRAX algorithm. These can include falls, uh, a family history of uh, a fracture that's not a hip, uh, think of um, parents who have had, say, a pelvic fracture. That's not incorporated, but it could be considered a hip fracture equivalent. Um, type 2 diabetes, uh, as mentioned, chronic kidney disease, frailty, and um, of multiple comorbidities. Um, the notion that uh, dose and response, um, higher dose, is not uh, included into FRAX. So I would consider a person who's got uh, one spine fracture versus uh, another person who, say, has uh, half a dozen a spine fracture. That's a, that's a different risk for future fracture. Or the person who's on uh, prednisone 2.5 milligrams versus 40 milligrams. Of course, the higher dose is going to uh, lead to a higher risk for falling bone density and fracture. Um, same with the amount of cigarettes and alcohol. So. In the end, uh, we start off with the FRAX output, but we have to um, modify it using some clinical judgment and uh, consider the patient's preferences, the medication cost, safety, and efficacy. R related to this particular case, um, uh, there's not a, a button to press for type 2 diabetes like there is for rheumatoid arthritis. Um, you can uh, press the rheumatoid arthritis as an equivalent for the presence of type 2 diabetes, but intentionally here, this person has both. And so um, the alternative for adjusting for type 2 diabetes is to take the T-score and drop it by half a standard deviation. Um, there's another issue related to uh, dose of steroids. So, um, if the dose is high, uh, defined as uh, 7.5 milligrams of prednisone or more per day, uh, you can take the FRAX uh, uh, hip risk and increase that by 20%. So um, in this particular case, uh, for, the, for the high steroid dose, adding 20% to the hip fracture risk, um, you can see the numbers there. We started off with the hip fracture risk of 2.9%. Um, Twenty percent of that is um, shown, and when we add, we exceed the typical threshold of um, hip fracture risk of three percent. So this four percent exceeds that, and uh, may lead to um, a, a change in how you approach uh, medication therapy. Or for the diabetes, um, we decrease that T-score by uh, 0.5, so that adjusted femoral neck T-score now is minus 2.7 and then refracts and gives a hip fracture risk of 5.5%, uh, again, exceeding the threshold uh, to consider a drug therapy. Um, 
Here's a, 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 a diagnostic criteria or definition for, for osteoporosis, which comes from um, uh, American Association for Clinical Endocrinologists. So it's got the, the, the usual densitometric criteria of T-score at minus 2.5 or less. And it's got the um, fragility fracture at spine or hip. And it doesn't matter what the uh, uh, DEXA is or um, fragility fracture of the proximal humerus, pelvis, or distal forearm, also in, in the setting of osteopenia. And the fourth category uh, shown is if the patient's got osteopenia by DEXA scan and after FRAX uh, gets to these uh, threshold values, hip um, 3%, major osteoporotic fracture 20%. Major osteoporotic fracture is defined as a risk um, uh, of hip, um, spine, distal forearm, or proximal humerus. So um, the clinical tip I'm uh, offering here is that you can take the person who's got osteopenia by uh, DEXA scan, but after uh, doing FRAX and meeting these uh, criteria, you can actually say in the note there's osteoporosis based on clinical practice guideline, and then put the appropriate diagnosis for uh, billing as osteoporosis rather than osteopenia. Next, um, uh, as uh, we're, we're trying to uh, look for people who have spine fracture, this is the fracture phenotype that is the most common of all the different types of fractures, and it's often silent. Um, this uh, clinical practice guideline advocates uh, getting a spine imaging in a woman at age 65 or a man greater than 80 if a T-score is anything lower than normal or a younger man uh, with a little bit lower T-score. Now in, in my practice, I, I'll freely admit I have difficulty remembering one and two, but um, three is a little bit easier. Uh, anybody who's had a, a fracture starting at age 50, or has had height loss of at least an inch and a half compared to young adult height, or if you're measuring uh, prospectively, uh, the height has decreased by at least 0.8 inches. Uh, somebody who's on steroid um, without height loss actually can have uh, spine deformities. Um, and certain conditions like primary hyperparathyroidism, which should prompt uh, doing spine imaging because that'll lead to um, a recommendation for um, uh, treatment like uh, surgery in the, in the setting of a spine fracture. And we can do this by getting uh, plain uh, x-rays of the thoracic spine, lumbar spine, but there's also an add-on uh, software program in the DEXA uh, called vertebral fracture assessment. So uh, the, we can use the DEXA scan uh, to uh, get a, a basically a lateral spine image and um, assess for fracture. So here, if you do imaging and a, a spine fracture is identified, uh, that counts as a diagnosis of osteoporosis. Um, and again, you can put that in your note and diagnose it uh, as osteoporosis in, in your uh, billing. So in uh, the setting of a patient who has had a fragility fracture, um, this guideline um, advocates um, 
practitioners across the medical continuum give three simple messages that one, there's probably an underlying condition like osteoporosis and that leads to an increased risk for the second fracture, especially over the short term, like when the next one or two years, that uh, fragility fractures have uh, fr uh, co important consequences to mobility, independence, uh, participation in activities, and uh, greater mortality. And thirdly, that there are medications that can lower the future risk of fracture. Um, here is the standard T-score criteria, but I have highlighted on the bottom there uh, this diagnosis of, quote, severe osteoporosis, which is uh, the meeting the densitometric definition as well as having um, had a fragility fracture. So again, in your note, if you place severe osteoporosis uh, based on uh, meeting this definition, that may actually help in um, uh, obtaining certain medications. And finally, um, many clinical practice guidelines have uh, started incorporating this notion of very high fracture risk as opposed to just high fracture risk. On the left, we're seeing the T-score criteria, minus 2.5 or lower, having had a fracture, um, having had high uh, absolute fracture risk based on fracs. But on the right, we're seeing um, criteria for very high fracture risk and incorporating this notion of recency of fracture, say less than uh, w within the past uh, 12 months. Fractures, uh, incident fractures on uh, osteoporosis therapy, multiple fractures, um, drugs that are causing uh, skeletal harm like, like steroids, or very low T-score here, uh, say less than minus three, or very high frax risk. Uh, greater than 30 for major osteoporotic fracture or 4.5% for hip, or having had um, a prior injurious fall or, or is at high risk for falling. So um, we can use this term very high fracture risk if you say you see your patient back after they've had hospitalization for hip fracture and they're following up in clinic um, sh uh, shortly after that discharge. Um, the American College of Physicians uh, recent guideline on treatment will uh, says the following, uh, to use uh, bisphosphonates as a first line. And I think that uh, alendronate, resedronate, ibandronate are still going to be the workhorses for uh, most primary care uh, practices. But uh, consider denosumab as a second line, especially if uh, there's intolerance to the orals. Um, and in this situation of very high fracture risk, use uh, the bone anabolic agents, romazosumab and the PTH analogs. Um, and like many other conditions, we have to individualize our approach um, for treatment of osteoporosis as well as osteopenia. And finally, uh, this, this month of May is uh, Osteoporosis Awareness and Prevention Month. 54 million Americans have low bone density or osteoporosis. Thank you so much, Steve. Uh, I really appreciated that, especially all those tips you um, included for us primary care folks so we can get things covered and um, get people the right risk level.
Um, now, I noticed that on your bone density kind of graph that in children, the bone density seems to be a lot lower, similar to um, after patients age. And myself as a um, both internal medicine and pediatric practitioner, I'm curious, do we see increased fractures in children as well? Yeah, um, in my clinical practice, I am only seeing adults. Um, but the, when you look at the bone density graphs um, of kids and teenagers, they're rising. Um, yet, uh, bone, the, the incidence of uh, fractures in childhood starts off low and then increases as kids become more active. So it's not um, th that relationship doesn't really apply in kids. Another important consideration is that uh, these growing skeletons are also enlarging in size and uh, larger bone size is uh, going to be a stronger bone. Uh, so there, there are many other factors that lead to uh, fractures in kids besides mm -hmm. just the bone density. Okay, perfect. Next, we'll turn over the presentation to Laura to discuss treatment. Laura? Thank you, Jing Jing. Okay, so um, this leads, uh, Steve's comments lead perfectly into a discussion about treatment of osteoporosis. And I want to start by just having you sort of think to yourself um, about this question, and, and then maybe, maybe we'll challenge uh, what your answer might be or support it. I would not start someone directly on deteriparatide or abaloperatide or romosozumab unless they had tried an anti-resorptive such as bisphosphonate or denosumab first. So um, I guess the question for you to think about is, you know, is that true for you or not? So what we're going to go over today uh, include a variety of aspects of treatment and approach to osteoporosis, which includes medical therapy, but also uh, calcium and vitamin D. And we'll uh, touch a little bit on the physical aspects, physical therapy and exercise, um, as well as some of the data to, that supports um, the FDA approval of these medications, um, both to improve bone density, but also um, I want to really point out fracture data um, that we have on all these various uh, options that we have to use so that hopefully um, at the end of this uh, everyone will feel a little bit more comfortable um, uh, discussing these options with their patients and also which ones they might recommend and to actually choose. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on tobacco cessation except to say that it's important and it helps bones. So let's talk about calcium and vitamin D. Honestly, I could spend a really a long time talking about calcium and vitamin D, and there's a lot of um, confusion. I get a lot of questions about how to, how to dose calcium and vitamin D, but the bottom line is, is that the National Osteoporosis Foundation and the Institute of Medicine both point out that um, the, the basically for most people, the, the recommended daily amount of calcium intake is 1,000 to 1,200 milligrams per day. Um, you know, I, I have... Osteoporosis, um, sometimes it's, it's diagnosed when somebody has a fracture, um, and a lot of times when that occurs, our patients are anxious to avoid more fractures. Um, uh, and so they are more motivated to learn about um, medications for osteoporosis. But we've also uh, discovered that our medications for osteoporosis do a great job of prevention. And in our patients who have osteoporosis and have risk factors for fracture, if we institute therapy, we can actually prevent uh, fractures to come. Sometimes, though, it's a little bit harder um, to, uh, for patients to buy into this idea. Um, and I will have patients a lot of times ask me, well, what if I just take more calcium? Or what if I just take more vitamin D? 
Um, and the answer is, is that taking more calcium isn't going to make bones stronger. Um, it simply is going to increase the amount of calcium that's in the urine and increase the likelihood of kidney stones. And that's very similar for uh, vitamin D as well. Um, please note that the recommendations for vitamin D is, you know, for most people is 1,000 units per day, not 4,000 or 10,000 or, or whatnot. Um, the safe upper, upper limit is noted to be 4,000 units of supplementation per day. And the goal truly is to simply have a vitamin D level of 30 or greater. Um, for a lot of our patients here, it's the end of winter in Ohio. Our skin hasn't seen sunshine in, in quite a while. It's fine to have a vitamin D level of 30 at this time of year. And it's probably going to be higher if we were to check it in October. Um, I've noticed that most labs uh, have a normal vitamin D level of 30 to 100. But in fact, a normal vitamin D level is probably more like 30 to 60. And there's quite a few um, uh, papers that would point out that vitamin D levels that are consistently greater than 60 can also increase the risk of kidney stones and don't necessarily change uh, fracture incidence. As a matter of fact, there was a really nice meta-analysis of trials looking at supplementation of calcium and vitamin D. And, and granted, most of these are not separated. You know, usually if somebody's on calcium, they're also on vitamin D. Especially, normally if people are on vitamin D, um, it's hard to separate vitamin D from calcium. But as you can see, um, on, the, on the left side of this kind of busy slide is the relative risk of total fractures, and on the right side is the relative risk of falls. And neither one of these meta-analyses showed any uh, meaningful difference with calcium or vitamin D supplementation on the incidence of fractures or falls. Um, it, it's widely recognized and agreed upon that if a patient is 65 or older and they have osteoporosis, having goal vitamin D levels and taking calcium is going to be better for bones and is going to contribute to a decreased fracture risk. Um, but truly this concept of really pushing extra calcium and vitamin D is not supported. Okay, so let's talk about the medications for the treatment of osteoporosis. And I'm gonna divide this into anti-resorptive therapy. Um, as, as Steve showed, the, the aspects of bone loss include osteoclastic bone loss and then um, gain of bone with osteoblasts. Um, so the medications that reduce mainly how they work is to decrease osteoclastic bone loss include estrogen and um, SERMs. Estrogen, I'm not going to spend much time on it, has so, much, so many side effects that it's just generally not recommended um, as, a, as a therapy for osteoporosis or fracture prevention. Although I will point out that in the Women's Health Initiative trial, it's truly the only primary prevention medication that actually showed people to have a decreased risk of hip fracture um, uh, in, in all postmenopausal people. Um, similarly, raloxifene is a SERM. It's a selective estrogen receptor modulator. It acts like estrogen on bone, acts as an anti-estrogen on breast. Um, it has been shown to statistically significantly reduce vertebral compression fractures, but, but much more modestly. Um, it's not nearly as potent as the other medications that we have, um, and it's never been shown to prevent anything other than vertebral compression fractures. So we'll spend more time on some of the more classic medications like our oral bisphosphonates, alendronate, resedronate, and ibandronate, and the IV bisphosphonate. Um, I pretty much only use zoledronic acid except for um, rare occasions in the hospital. I'll, I'll maybe use pomidronate. Um, and then denosumab is our only rank ligand inhibitor. 
And then um, our medications that directly stimulate osteoblastic bone formation are our parathyroid analogs, teriparatide and abaloparatide. And then the most recent medication that has been FDA approved for treatment of osteoporosis actually um, both decreases osteoclastic bone loss and stimulates osteoblastic bone gain. So it's sort of a combination, and we'll touch on that medicine as well. Um, I want to point out um, what Steve was referring to, and, and this is truly um, this is a truly a busy slide, um, but this is a really nice um, way to approach somebody where you have already diagnosed osteoporosis. At, at the, in those top gray um, bars, evaluate for secondary causes, correct calcium and vitamin D deficiency, and then recommend pharmacologic therapy. And then what the American Association of Clinical Endocrinology does is they divide um, which therapies to, to go to first based upon whether or not they are at high risk for prior fracture or very high risk for prior fracture, especially people, and they point out in this box those aspects that Steve had um, previously discussed, you know, um, people at eminent risk for fracture, people who have had one or more fractures in the past year on high doses of steroids, people who are falling frequently, just where, where they truly are at risk for fracturing soon. So um, that's one way to consider uh, approach to therapy. And let's talk about um, our various medications that we have available to us. Bisphosphonates have been around for a while. They were um, started to be studied in the early 90s. They have a really interesting history themselves. But what bisphosphonates do is they go straight to this multinucleated osteoclast, and they're taken up by the osteoclast where they disrupt basically every part of osteoclastic bone resorption. They cause loss of that ruffled border. Um, they decrease the ability of those vesicles to move through the cell so that they can't release their acids, they can't release their bone breakdown enzymes, um, and ultimately cause death of the cell. Um, so let's talk about uh, just a few points of the major data. Um, so this is data on alendronate. Um, and this is some old data. And, and this placebo-controlled randomized um, postmenopausal women to alendronate of varying doses versus placebo. And they were actually continued on the alendronate for 10 years. Now, back in the early 90s, alendronate was dosed daily. Um, but now we dosed alendronate 70 milligrams once a week. But in that, in that active alendronate group, it showed, you know, it's something that's really important for us to understand, ongoing improvements in bone density at the lumbar spine over the full 10 years that people were on alendronate. It's not that alendronate stops working after five years, and frankly, it really doesn't become so dangerous after five years. But the really interesting thing about this trial was that there was another group that took alendronate daily for five years, and then they stopped it. And what they found over the next four to five years being off of therapy was that bone mass at the lumbar spine was stable. Now there was a gradual decline in bone mass at the femoral neck and total hip, but it didn't go all the way back to their baseline bone density. And this um, study really established for us our understanding of this um, more modern concept of a drug holiday. Um, let's move on to IV bisphosphonates. Zoledronic acid can be a really convenient option for people um, who have osteoporosis, people who have trouble with uh, compliance, frankly, or people who have a lot of GI um, side effects with oral bisphosphonates. And um, uh, zoledronic acid is dosed once a year, five milligrams. It's an IV infusion. I like to infuse it nice and slow over 40 to 45 minutes. And what you see is this lovely data, 60% reduction of a new vertebral compression fracture just one year after the infusion of Reclast, and that persists over three years. 
Now, very similar data is seen in the extension trial for zoledronic acid. This is also known as the Horizon trial. And what you see in this um, tiny little graph where you can't really see anything is that in the first three years, ongoing improvements in bone density at the femoral neck, the total hip, and the lumbar spine. And then in the second half of that graph, these patients either continue on zoledronic acid every year for a total of six years, or they stop zoledronic acid and they're on no medication for the next three years. And what you see at the bottom of that slide is the lumbar spine bone density is stable. It doesn't drop back to baseline. Now at the total hip and femoral neck, you do see a decline. And frankly, at the end of those six years, the bone density is not as good in the people who are on drug holiday for three years, but it certainly does not drop back to baseline. Let's switch to our rank ligand inhibitor. So bisphosphonates go straight to the osteoclast and they break down the osteoclast and the, the ability of the osteoclast to cause bone loss. What a rank ligand inhibitor does is it's an antibody that binds to rank ligand and it decreases, it, 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 it occur, its effect is earlier in the process. It decreases the, the activation of osteoclasts, it decreases the differentiation of pre-osteoclasts into osteoclasts, and it can directly decrease the activity of osteoclasts themselves. We also have beautiful data with denosumab. Denosumab is a subcutaneous injection that can um, be given in the office or an infusion center, and it's, it was studied over 10 years. And, and the really sort of in, in, intriguing thing about the study is that the average age of the people at um, uh, inclusion at the start of the study was 72. That means that 10 years later, the average age was 82. There's a bunch of people in here who are late 80s by the end of this study, even into the 90s. And what you see is this ongoing improvement in bone density over those 10 years, and you really don't even see any evidence of a plateau. Um, in terms of osteonecrosis of the jaw, which I will touch on um, uh, in a bit, there were um, six cases um, in, well, 13 cases total, um, and there were two cases total of atypical femoral fractures in this pretty sizable study that went on for 10 years. Um, this was a fracture um, data with denosumab, and what you see is that over the first three years, a remarkable difference in the incidence of new vertebral compression fractures in those who were on placebo for three years versus those who were on denosumab and then those dark green bars. Okay, let's move on and talk about anabolic therapy. So our anabolic therapy are medications that directly stimulate osteoblastic bone formation, basically include teriparatide and abaloparatide. And we, we like to call these um, parathyroid analogs because um, they're, they're not a full parathyroid molecule, but they're very similar. Um, sometimes it's a truncated parathyroid molecule. The abaloparatide is, is sort of a combination. And its main action is to stimulate osteoblasts. Um, there's a couple hurdles that patients have to get over. They give themselves an injection with this pen at home every day. But it's a tiny little um, insulin needle. And most of my patients, um, once they sort of you know, come to grips with the idea of that. I, you know, I tell them, you know, your friends who have diabetes, they're giving themselves six injections per day. You know, I, this, I don't think this is going to be as bad as you think. You use this for two years, and then you follow it uh, with a bisphosphonate. And teriparatide, for example, is currently FDA-approved for postmenopausal osteoporosis, but also hypogonadal osteoporosis in men and glucocorticoid-induced osteoporosis. But you should be thinking to yourself, 
wait a minute, why would these medicines work? If these are parathyroid hormone, our disease state um, sort of example of what parathyroid hormone does to bone is primary hyperparathyroidism. And one of the main problems with primary hyperparathyroidism is osteoporosis. So why in the world would we give more parathyroid hormone um, to these patients that, that, you know, that have osteoporosis? Wouldn't it make their bone worse? And, you know, I mean, the answer to that is actually not fully clear, but it seems that when you give one big shot of parathyroid hormone, not, not that it's that big, but one, one injection of parathyroid hormone per day versus that slow, steady drip of parathyroid hormone that you would get, for example, with primary hyperparathyroidism, there's this preferential stimulation of osteoblastic bone formation that, that is kind of explosive. And then ultimately over 18 to 24 months, the osteoclasts do catch up, and then this medication becomes, you know, the, the effect of it, it sort of plateaus. But, but what you see is that over this first 18 to 24 months, this anabolic window where the osteoblasts are stimulated on a, a ratio of 1,000 to 1 over osteoclastic stimulation, and you see this lovely improvement um, in bone density, but more importantly, as Steve pointed out, the real role here in these medications is to reestablish bone structure so that you see reconnections of those trabeculae and reestablishment of really the strength and structure of bone. As a matter of fact, in this um, sort of 3D re uh, pictorial recreation of a paired bone biopsy sample, this is one person, um, and on the left you see a bone biopsy picture from baseline, and on the right, this is after 12 months of being on teriparatide. And what you see is not just that what's left behind has gotten thicker, but those trabeculae have grown back together and they have reconnected. And when you look at the bone biopsy images and data from almost all of these medicines for osteoporosis, this is really what they are doing. They are allowing bone to become stronger and reestablishing that structure. Um, so that bone, bone is stronger, and, and bone density is part of the story, but it's not the whole story. We don't have a way of measuring this, the structure of bone unless we did some, you know, some expensive radiation you know, procedure like a quantitative CT. And so what we have, the tool that we use is bone density, but there's a lot going on with these medications on, um, on a cellular, on a, on a more microscopic, you know, or even macroscopic level within bone um, that is a little bit harder to measure, but has been shown in all of these uh, trials looking at fracture prevention with medications for osteoporosis. When you look at um, what both abaloparatide and teriparatide do to prevent fractures, um, they, they both do an amazing job of preventing fractures compared with placebo. You know, to be perfectly honest with you, these medications are quite expensive. In my mind, they are um, interchangeable. Um, and so to me, it just depends upon which one I can get better covered um, in terms of which one I decide to use. So what about using anabolic therapy first? You know, um, in, in the old days, we definitely, you know, sort of had this pathway of, you know, start with alendronate. If that doesn't work, then switch them to zoledronic acid. If that doesn't work, go with denosumab. And then if you are, you've got nothing else, you've tried everything else, and you're really desperate, then you go with teriparatide. And for a lot of people, I agree with Steve, um, bisphosphonates are the workhorses. You know, a, a huge percentage of my uh, patients with osteoporosis, especially those who have osteoporosis but haven't yet fractured, I have them on oral and IV bisphosphonates and denosumab. But 
in patients who really are at very high risk for fracture, I would encourage you to at least consider the possibility of using anabolics first, followed by um, uh, anti-resorptives. Anabolics are expensive. Um, these are daily subcutaneous uh, medications that have to be given, um, uh, but they show the best fracture prevention. Um, it's, it's the best. It's, it happens the earliest with um, the most robust increases in bone density. Um, and so maybe consider using these in patients with severe osteoporosis, especially people who've had a, a fracture within the past year. This is a head-to-head -head trial looking at resedronate versus um, teriparatide. This is the Vero trial. These patients um, uh, had significant osteoporosis, and you do see a significant um, re uh, difference in the incidence of new vertebral fractures. Um, in those, uh, in the blue bars, the teriparatide, there's fewer new vertebral fractures. And then on the right side of this screen, you see this, these Kaplan-Meier curves, where um, the incidence of any clinical fracture um, was less with teriparatide in the blue versus resedronate. Um, and you can see those lines are separating as early as you know six to nine months. There's a difference between um, the ability of these to prevent fractures. I, I also want to introduce the newest player in the, on the scene for treatment of osteoporosis, and that's romosozumab. This is a really interesting medication. Um, in, in bone, um, this pathway of the Wnt beta catenin um, uh, binding pathway with this cell surface molecule, the L LRP, turns out is a really important pathway for stimulating nuclear um, gene transcription and, and activating osteoblastic bone formation. But interestingly, there's a couple of things that are circulating that sort of gum up the works and decrease the ability of Wnt to bind to LRP, blocking that activation of beta-catenin. And one of those molecules is sclerostin. And what we've discovered um, is that if we can bind and inactivate sclerostin with a monoclonal antibody, we can allow this to occur. And you see osteoblastic bone formation. And interestingly, the antibodies to sclerostin also decrease the rank ligand pathway, um, leading to a decrease in the formation of osteoclasts. Um, there were three main trials looking at fracture data with romosozumab. Frame was treatment-naive, postmenopausal women who, re who have osteoporosis that either were receiving romosozumab or placebo. And what they saw was a 73% reduction in vertebral fracture risk after 12 months on romosozumab. Now, the ARCH trial was romosozumab compared to alendronate in patients with very low bone density, all of whom had already had fractures. And what they saw was a 50% relative reduction risk of vertebral compression fractures with romosozumab versus alendronate. And alendronate does beautifully reduce vertebral compression fractures. There was also a 38% um, reduction in hip fractures after 36 months of uh, therapy. That's a year of romosozumab uh, followed by an anti-resorptive. Now, I think the most useful study, even though it's much smaller and it's just a bone density study, is the structure trial. Now, in the structure trial, this is more real life. These patients had to be on a bisphosphonate for at least three years, which is very common. A lot of times, patients are on bisphosphonates appropriately, and then something happens. They fracture, or there's a major clinical change. And then we think to ourselves, maybe we should be doing something different for these patients. I don't think the bisphosphonate is working well enough in this particular case. And so in this trial, these patients were on bisphosphonates for three plus years, and then they were randomized to either teriparatide or romosozumab. And you see um, really nice improvements in bone density at both the total hip and the lumbar spine, statistically significant and um, a, little bit, a little better than teriparatide.
Now, romosozumab is dosed uh, monthly, and it really just works for 12 months, and then its effect really wanes. And then after that 12 months, then it, they have to be transitioned to an anti-resorptive, like an oral bisphosphonate or an IV bisphosphonate or denosumab. But I will point out that in one of the trials, the trial where um, romosozumab was um, uh, looked at versus alendronate, there was a signal of increased major adverse cardiac events. There were uh, 43 events in the romosozumab group versus 20 events in the placebo group. And that was felt to be really different. And those events included myocardial infarction, stroke, and cardiovascular death. These, this difference was not seen in the other trials, but it was certainly seen in that um, ARCH trial versus alendronate. And so there is a black box warning that if someone has had a myocardial infarction or a stroke within the past year, this medication should not be used. So one thing that is that our patients are worried about, and frankly Steve and I are worried about, are these rare side effects, um, but they can be rather dramatic, like medically related osteonecrosis of the jaw. In cancer patients, the incidence is much higher, but they're also receiving these medications at higher doses much more frequently. What we've discovered looking at the incidence of these in all of our trials is that the risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw among patients treated with zoledronic acid or denosumab approximates the cases that we see in placebo. Similarly, we've also seen this pattern of atypical femoral fractures, which is very dramatic and, um, and very worrisome. Uh, this was originally uh, noted by uh, Leonard in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2008, but these x-rays are um, fractures from my own patients. Um, the first one, you can see um, a fracture that's healing after rod placement. In the contralateral femur, you can see a, a beaking where um, a, a pre-fracture is kind of forming. Um, and then in another patient of mine, you can see this patient um, was loading her dishwasher, turned, um, fractured, and then fell. Atypical femoral fractures most commonly occur in the proximal third of the femoral shaft, and they often occur in the setting of no or minimal trauma. But what I want to point out is that almost always there is pain. Um, and atypical femoral fractures can occur in people who've never been on medication for osteoporosis. So if someone, one of your patients comes in and they're on therapy for osteoporosis or not, if they talk about new pain around the hip or the groin, have a low threshold for ordering a plain x-ray of the femur just to see if there's a pre-fracture. And then the bisphosphonate holiday is this idea of suspending therapy for two to five years because some data would indicate that if you just interrupt therapy every so often that you can significantly interfere with the risk of developing ONJ or atypical femoral fractures. But a bisphosphonate really is only, a holiday is really only appropriate in bisphosphonates. Um, if you were to stop therapy with denosumab, um, you would see a rapid, rapid loss of everything gained and maybe even an increased risk of fracture. So this idea of taking a breather from therapy um, is really just applies to bisphosphonates. Exercise is really important uh, with osteoporosis, and a variety of exercises is, is uh, really helpful. Um, uh, weight bearing is great. Weight lifting is probably the only type that's been consistently shown to impact bone density, but it has to be pretty heavy weight lifting, which isn't appropriate for all of our patients. Definitely avoid crunches and sit-ups. And for the exercises that I and my physical therapy colleagues like the best include planks, heel raises, squats, and I love bird dog, it hits everything. It's just a great balance and core exercise. 
Once we've decided to start therapy, we want to follow a bone density every two years. It often takes at least 24 months to see a change in bone density at the hip. Um, rarely does somebody need to have a bone density once a year, and getting a bone density every two years can give you a hint as to whether or not your therapy is working and also can, can provide some nice feedback for your patients. Thank you so much, Laura. Uh, that was wonderful. You went through, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of information in our very short period of time. Um, now, in terms of the drug holiday for bisphosphonates, how do you decide when um, or if to resume bisphosphonate after the holiday? Yeah, so um, I think the most important thing about um, to remember about osteoporosis is that it's a chronic disease. There's no cure for osteoporosis. Um, and so rarely, if ever, um, once you, you achieve a, a treatment goal, uh, maybe the bone density increases and there, it's in the osteopenic range now. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's a clinical goal. They have had no fractures over the past three to five years. Um, maybe they've stopped smoking. Maybe they're exercising more. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you hit a point where you say, boy, we probably could take a break from therapy now. And so you decide to discontinue, say, a bisphosphonate. And, um, and then you can follow bone density. You can follow markers of bone turnover. But really, most importantly, you follow their clinical status. How are they doing at home? Um, are there any new medical issues? Are they falling frequently? And, and when you put all those things together, um, almost always they need to restart therapy. And it could be anywhere from two to five years after that holiday. Okay. Now, um, in terms of those patients that you first have on an anabolic and then switch to the bisphosphonate, um, you know, you mentioned that the anabolic stopped working. Is there a point at which you could restart the anabolic and it would start working again? Yes, and that's definitely been um, more acknowledged over the past five to eight years. Um, Anabolic, sometimes the only thing that patients will respond to is anabolic therapy, but it truly loses its effect after 18 to 24 months. And so um, in, in, on the long haul of taking care of somebody with really significant osteoporosis, as you follow their bone density over time, once they've switched to an anti-resorptive, a lot of times there comes a point where something's changed in their life or they've lost a significant degree of bone mass on their bone density. And sometimes it's appropriate and, and useful to restart an anabolic. Mm -hmm. Well, just one last question uh, before we wrap up for Steve. Um, you know, I think we focus a lot on women on this talk, and so I'm curious about uh, osteoporosis in men a little bit more. So you mentioned, you know, one of the guidelines recommends starting to do screening at age 70, um, but it seems like, at least from your graph, that men still have higher bone density than women at age 70. Um, so I'm curious, are there other factors aside from simply bone density or age that affects uh, fractures in men? Yeah, that was an insightful um, comment uh, looking at that graph. But it wasn't actually um, drawn to scale. Mm -hmm. um, it was more of a cartoon. But looking at some actual data, um, the looking, and it depends on which uh, uh, skeletal site you're looking at for the DEXA scan, but say for femoral neck, um, the, the time at which uh, the, the Caucasian man is going to be the same as a Caucasian woman is going to be around age 50 or 60. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, uh, other differences uh, between men and women include lar uh, overall larger bone size, and that's mm -hmm. an important uh, determinant of uh, fracture risk. And uh, the, the, if we took 
the male T-score um, and used and compared it against a young male population uh, versus uh, what we're currently advocating, which is to compare it against a, a female population, uh, you, you would get less osteoporosis um, if we're using a, a male, uh, a young male population. But actually, the larger bone size confers a greater fracture prevention. So when you integrate that, it's actually better to use the female uh, young adult population for uh, determining T-scores in men. Okay, that's really helpful to know. Thank you so much for both of you. I thought this was a wonderful talk. Thank you so much for joining us today. For our audience, you can receive CME credit for watching by logging on to ccme.osu.edu and taking our post-test. Join us again next week when my guests, Dr. Matthew Washam and Emily Vontos, are here to discuss COVID-19 vaccine updates. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.